Tonight's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Saturday afternoon, I uh, went up into my study and... um, collected most of my books on the Trinity that have been sitting there since uh, June. Uh, I started to prepare for the series and loaded them up. Uh, I kept a small stack for next week's sermon. It'll be the last one of the year. It'll be the last one of this series. And uh, I've been intrigued by this question all all series long, and we're we're going to look at the Trinity as a model for a healthy city. So I kept a few books out for that. But by and large, I I packed them up, started a new pile for Advent. Uh, I can't wait for that to start in two weeks. Started another pile for a series on lament that I I hope to do during um, uh, Lent. And as I I put the books into my car uh, and and looked at all the notes and, and just tried to get organized again, I asked myself, wow, you know, we spent a lot of time on this. What's the big idea? What... Well, what do we take away from this? Sometimes I've, I've struggled in this series to make it practical and not just metaphor. Uh, and, and I was reminded that, that C.S. Lewis, uh, at the end of uh, chapter 4 in Mere Christianity, where he has talked about the Trinity, and believe it or not, it was actually a radio broadcast. I can't imagine trying to broadcast on the Trinity, but he did. And, and he asked the question at the end, well, who cares anyway? What does it matter? Does it matter that we believe in the triune God? And, and this is what he said. He says, it matters more than anything in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. There is no other way for the, to the happiness for which we were made. Now, Lewis felt that the heart of the Christian life was being taken up into the life of the Trinity. And we talked about that a little bit last week. And, and, and I wondered as I left last week, feeling there was more to say, but wasn't quite sure where to go, I wondered, did the Scriptures address anywhere this idea of being taken up into the life of the Trinity, of participating with the Trinity? 
And Lewis, of course, points out that they do. That the scriptures invite us to participate in an internal conversation that the Trinity is having all the time and has had for all eternity and participating in the eternal conversation of the Trinity is called prayer. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, The whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. Now, it's true that you don't have to pass a theology test to pray. Uh, Matthew 6, 8, Our Father knows what we need before we ask. Prayer is as simple as a child talking to his father. Uh, But prayer can be difficult. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I think I've discovered over the years is that this is something we don't like to talk about a lot, but most of us are dissatisfied with our prayer life. Most of us struggle with our prayer life more than we'd like to admit. Most of us have given up at some point on our prayer life. Uh, Prayer can be very discouraging. Prayer can too easily drift into magic. Uh, Prayer is very prone to viruses of legalism. And as I've shared with you a couple times this week, we all go through this month, we go go through seasons of prayer. I'm at a one bar season right now. I'm just getting getting a signal, but not much of a signal. Um, Did you like the technological metaphor there? Kind of, you know, I'm kind of proud of that. Um, 20 years dated, but it's it's important. Well, so I approached this this week, and I just ask: is there anything about Trinitarian prayer that might help me in my prayer life that I might share with you that we might uh, be more encouraged in our prayer? And my study this week of a Trinitarian vision of prayer uh, has led me to, to a very simple observation. Trinitarian prayer is prayer to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Trinitarian prayer is prayer to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Now, let's try to build a Trinitarian vision of prayer tonight, uh, one, one piece at a time. Let's start with this idea that we pray to the Father. If you study prayers in the New Testament, almost all of them are prayed to the Father. Jesus teaches us to pray our Father who art in heaven. Uh, James 17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. Paul in his great prayer in Ephesians 3, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, there are exceptions. Corinthians ends with a prayer, uh, Come Lord Jesus. Uh, Stephen, I believe when he's martyred, prays to Jesus. I think there's another prayer to Jesus at the end of the book of Revelation. We don't have any record of any prayers to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Most of the prayers our prayers to the Father. Now, the church's teachers over the years have not found anything wrong with praying to any member of the Trinity because each member of the Trinity is fully God. So it's not a problem if you pray to the Spirit or pray to the Son. But the normal pattern or rhythm of prayer in the New Testament is prayer to the Father, the ground and source of all of our creation. And in Jesus, when he is teaching the disciples on prayer in Luke 11, it tells a little parable of prayer, and he, and he asks this question. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? 
Or if they ask for an egg, we'll give them a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, in one of the places where Jesus addresses prayer directly, he says, let's start with the Father. Uh, You're praying to a Father who loves you and is good and wants the best for you. That's where your prayer life begins, with a belief that that's who you're praying to. Now, I, I think a lot of us misdiagnose our problems with prayer. When we care enough about it to ask, how am I praying and, and how is that part of my life going? I think a lot of times we misanalyze the problem. We, we say, you know, I've just been so busy, I, I just haven't had time to pray. Or, you know, I've got some theological problems that, that I get stuck on. Or, my prayers haven't been answered, I, I'm not sure I want to pray anymore. Well, that's all valid. I would suggest to you that the core reason why we don't pray more is we don't know the Father. For a variety of reasons, whether it's our earthly father or whatever else, we we, we are not captured by this vision of a good, loving father who wants the best for us and who is waiting to talk to us and guide us and energize us and protect us in our life. If that's the the vision by which our prayer begins, prayer becomes easier. But often we, we we don't have that vision. I know one of my children once said, uh, and, and I know they love me and they respect me and they're very appreciative, but once, once said, you know, you worked a lot, Dad, when we were kids, and you weren't there that much. I, I didn't, didn't like hearing that. Um, immediately got defensive and thought of all the swim meets I went to, but I think there, there was a, a point that they were making. Now, what, is, what does a child learn when dad isn't there a lot? Well, when you start this father business, uh, maybe it's harder for them to, to pray to the father because maybe the father's busy. So you might think about your own experience with the father in prayer because that is where Trinitarian prayer begins. You're praying to a father who's crazy about you who wants the best for you, who won't give you a snake when you ask for bread. And, you know, let's just spend one more second on that. I think some of us are really afraid that he will. I had had someone tell me this week that the reason why they really don't pray is they're afraid if they really open up their heart in prayer that God will send them somewhere they don't want to go. (laughs) Now, that betrays a misunderstanding of who the Father is. Because the Father wants what's best for us. So Trinitarian prayer, we pray to the Father. Secondly, we pray through the Son. Ephesians 2.18, we have access to the Father through Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the passage that just, just read so powerfully, in verse 12, Paul reminds the Ephesians that prior to their conversion, they were separate from Christ, alienated from God's people, strangers to God's promises. In other words, they did not have access to the Father. Uh, They weren't yet His sons or daughters. Uh, They didn't really have the privilege of that kind of intimate prayer that the New Testament talks about. All of this was changed through the blood of Christ. 
Christ made it possible for us to have eternal, instant, immediate access to the Father. Hebrews 7.25, we have a high priest now. We draw near to God through, through Jesus Christ. So at any moment, we have access to God. And, and I think this has some profound uh, ramifications for our prayer life. It means that we don't draw near to God through our own efforts, but through the blood of Christ. Now, there is something in the human heart that clings to the need to contribute something to the salvation process. There is something in me that wants to believe that my relationship with God is based somehow on what I do or do not do. And and this, this seeps into our prayer life. And so we think, as I've struggled, well, I'm just at one bar right now. I'm not really getting much out of my times with Him. Why bother? I've thought that myself. Or I think, you know, I really blew it last night with my wife or my child or my friend or whatever. I, I better not get up and talk to him this morning because, I mean, that was a mess. I need a little, little time go by. Um, well, we have this checklist of things that we think we have to have in our hearts, we have to have done to get God's attention. But 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is why we end our prayers in Jesus' name. Because what we're saying is, because Jesus died and rose for me, covered my sins, gave me his righteousness, I have access to the Father. It's okay for me to pray when I just have one bar. It's okay for me to pray when I messed up last night. It's okay for me to pray when I'm sleepy or distracted. It's okay for me to pray because of the work of Christ. Now, I find, I've read a lot of literature on prayer over the years, and much of it is very helpful, but I often find subtle traces of legalism in the church's literature on prayer, in books that are otherwise very good. For example, many of the medieval writers loved to talk about prayer as climbing a ladder, that was a very common image in medieval literature about prayer. And of course, that's uh, uh, helpful in some ways, right? There, there are ways in which we progress in the spiritual life. But I would submit to you that fundamentally, the idea uh, of having to climb a lettered ladder to enter the presence of God is an old covenant concept. Because Jesus climbed down the ladder and took away the ladder so that we could be in His presence at all times. If embedded in my my soul is this idea that God is way up there and I'm way down here on this ladder, it's not very much of an incentive to pray. But we, we don't pray through a ladder. We pray through Christ. We pray through His blood. I, I remember in seminary, a chapel speaker or somebody reminding us that that the Korean pastors were just as busy as we were, but they prayed two hours a day before they went to work. And that was why their churches were growing. Well, now there's some truth to that. It's probably good to get up early and and pray. But do you see how easily that seeps over into kind of a magical formula for walking with God? Okay, if I get up at 5, 
I get this much blessing. For 30, I get this much. For 15, I get this much. It's like putting a coin in and, and uh, popping out a blessing. It's a very dangerous way to think about it. I, I, I find this legalism at work with a lot of young parents, particularly young, young mothers uh, who've just had children. And uh, maybe, maybe in college they, uh, they had the opportunity to have some really wonderful times with the Lord. And, and college students don't like to hear this, but you really do have more time in college than you ever will again until you die. Um, not, not, not that I resent that, but that's just part of the reality. And, and maybe you, you, know, you had this rich prayer life, and you, you're reading things, and you'd have these long hour and a half times with the Lord, and then you get married, and then you have a kid, and you are so tired, <laughs> you, you couldn't stay awake for a quiet time to save your neck. And the shame that comes to young mothers who base their spirituality, I know I'm right with God. How do you know? Because I had a quiet time. I've got this journal. Women have the oddest obsession with journals. Uh, they always come into my office with these Bibles with flowers on them and journals and, you know, the colors and all this stuff. So they, 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 they look at that journal and all its flowers and pictures and they think, that's how I know I'm right with God. Look at my journal. It's full of these wonderful times with God. And now you've got two kids and that journals, you can't even find the journal. <laughs> or somebody threw up on the journal. <laughs> you, know, you just, journaling is like, you know, who, who, who journals? So I, I would say to, to young parents, and, and dads have, have it harder in, in a way too, um, is lighten up on yourself. It doesn't say you have access to the Father through your journal. You have access to the Father through the Son. And if all you can do right now is when you're in that state between nursing and sleeping, just to say, God, I love you, that's enough. And if you can't even say that, that's enough. Why? Because it's about Jesus. It's not about you. I heard a great sermon this week on Trinitarian prayer and the the preacher gave an illustration from, from swimming, and, and he said, you know, when you try to teach a child to swim, uh, they usually start out thrashing and fighting the water. But eventually, you want to get them to rest and float, and that's when they learn how to, to swim. And his point was that a lot of us sort of thrash with our prayer, but where we want to move is towards floating, towards resting. And that's possible because Christ's work on the cross. Now, I, I do think there's a question that, that uh, this raises. You know, Doug, if you're, if you're saying there's no ladder, if you're saying uh, it doesn't matter if you prayed two hours or if you, you're a young mom and you, you can't pray at all, that none of this matters, what are you saying? Are you saying that the disciplines don't matter? Are you saying that sacrificial fasting doesn't matter? What are you saying? What is the purpose of fasting? And that's something I've struggled with over the years. I've gone back and forth. I've gone into legalism. I've come out. What is the purpose of fasting? Do I fast to have access to the Father? No! (laughs) Please! No, 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 no! You have access to the Father through the Son. Well, then why go without food? Because it sweetens 
your experience of the Father. It enhances your capacity to hear from the Father. I quit fasting for a while because I got burned out on it. Uh, and then, then a couple weeks ago, uh, we were taking little kids swimming in, on a Tuesday, and that used to be the day that I fasted, and it just, uh, just my heart moved towards them, and I realized what a spiritual battle we were up against, and I felt the Spirit say, uh, why don't you start fasting again, and while those little guys are in the pool, why don't you intercede for them, because there's a war waging for their souls. I think that was an invitation that's been very sweet for me, very light. It's been a very, very joyful experience. Now, it's like having a conversation. I can go home uh, tonight, Sandy's been on a trip with our daughter uh, dancing or watching her dance, and um, uh, maybe the news will, well, we don't have TV, but uh, we, don't, we don't get cable anymore, but let's say there's something on TV, and uh, we can have a conversation while the TV's on. We're present. That's fun. But if we turn off the TV and sit down, we'll have a, probably a richer connection. So there are some things that you can do in your prayer life that can turn the TV off, that can remove some of the distractions. So we pray to the Father, through the Son. Now lastly, we pray by the Spirit. Now Paul in Romans 8 will talk about the Spirit in the believer's life. And then in Romans eight twenty six he says... Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches the heart knows what's the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's a marvelous promise. Because not only do you know who you're praying to, not only do you know you're allowed to because of the Son, Not only that, but the Spirit of God Himself has come into your life and now prays through you. You don't have to work it up. You don't have to cry. The Spirit prays through you, even when you don't know what to pray. In Ephesians 6, Paul picks this up and he says it's especially helpful in times of spiritual warfare. He says, uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood against the rulers and authorities and powers of darkness, spiritual forces and evil in the heavy places. Then he talks about putting on the armor and there to wear this armor, praying at all times in the Spirit. So we pray in, or same Greek word, in or by the power of the Spirit. Now, what does it look like to pray in the Spirit or by the Spirit? Well, some people think that Paul is referring to a spiritual language there, that he's, he's talking about when the Spirit wells up and gives you a different language and you intercede to that. Now, that obviously is one way to pray in the Spirit, but I can't imagine that that's all Paul's talking about there, because for Paul, the spiritual life is either in the flesh or in the Spirit. And if it's in the Spirit, every aspect of your spiritual life is empowered by the Spirit. So prayer must be empowered by the Spirit. So I think what praying in the Spirit means, it has less, less to do with the way you're praying and more the posture with which you're praying. It's the attitude with which you're praying. It's the position of your heart. It's the sense of, uh, I need your help, Lord. I've got one bar today, Lord. I've checked my phone twice during this quiet time, Lord. I'm so distracted, Lord. I don't trust you, Lord. You're not answering, Lord. 
The heavens are brass, Lord. Fill me with your spirit and help me pray. I think it's more a posture of our heart. Uh, Thursday, the downtown pastors met for lunch. We uh, do that once a month, and we always begin with prayer. And this Thursday, Father Ron from Immaculate Conception brought this wonderful noonday prayer from his missile, and, and we prayed it together. It was just the sweetest time of prayer, and I've been thinking about what we prayed all week. It was prayer in the Spirit, and it was liturgical prayer. Now, uh, people from, from the tradition that many of us are from, uh, especially if you have a strong pietistic emphasis, and that is a movement in church history that rightly reacted to a very dry and sterile uh, expression of, of, of faith and said, hey, it's about a personal relationship with Jesus. Most of us are from what's called an evangelical or pietist tradition. Tradition. It's that idea of an intimate relationship with Jesus. Great thing, great thing, great thing. Uh, we somehow, though, have defined our spiritual life as a very individual, private matter. And prayer is very much about my own personal experience with, with God. And that's important But it's out of balance, because if you study prayer in the New Testament epistles, it's as communal as it is private. When Paul speaks of the Ephesian church praying in the Spirit, he uses a plural pronoun. When when he describes the Corinthian churches praying in the Spirit, he talks about them praying in a community. And my fear is that that we might be a little out of balance as a congregation towards the personal and not appreciate fully the communal. And, and let me suggest three ways of corporate prayer that, uh, that are often overlooked that we can participate in. The first is the pastoral prayer that we did tonight. Um, now that's not something that somebody came up with at a church growth meeting. Um, this is First Timothy 2. This is a book about how the body life of the church to be structured. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, he says, first of all, of all the things that he could say to to this church, I think it was the Ephesian church, of all the things I want you to focus on, the first thing I want you to focus on is your pastoral prayer. I want you to come together together, Come together, and one of your leaders, I want, I want them to pray for your community, the problems in the world. That's, that'll lead to a peaceful and quiet life. Now, that's not easy to do. Uh, the, the members of the shepherding team spend a lot of time every week preparing those pastoral prayers. They email back and forth. They put a lot of time into it. And what I encourage you to do is train yourself to pray in the Spirit with them. And it's easy to be distracted. Uh, you know, we're not in a nice, quiet cathedral in the woods. We're in a restaurant, <laughs> okay? So you're going to have to fight that. But do fight it and try to enter in with the man or woman who's leading you in prayer. That is one of the most important ways that we pray in the Spirit. Now, a second way that we can do this is through liturgical prayer. Um, praying written prayers collectively. Now, a large part of the body of Christ offers uh, a liturgical prayer service several times a day. 
And, and most of them follow what's called the Revised Common Lectionary, which are a number of prayers that churches all over the world participate in at the same time. Now, why, why would you do that? I mean, isn't that quenching the spirit to read a written prayer? Well, it can be. But, brothers and sisters, you can pray in tongues in the flesh. I know I've done it. It's not the form, it's the heart. Just a word about this. Jesus worshipped in a synagogue, right? Jesus learned to worship in a synagogue. They didn't have a contemporary praise band in a synagogue. They read liturgical prayers. Go to a synagogue sometime, they're doing the same thing. It's more liturgical than the Greek Orthodox Church. It's all liturgy. So our Lord would have prayed liturgical prayers. And you find liturgical prayers scattered throughout the New Testament. For example, Philippians 2, 5-11, that great hymn about, the, about Jesus coming to, to cry to, to the world. That is written in the form of liturgy. That was a, 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 a liturgical prayer that was passed around in the early churches. So this is a part of, of the ancient church's life. And there's a few of us that have been holding on to this vision from the beginning. Suzanne Hassel, David Geick are among a few. And uh, I, I would love to see that become more robust in our life together. Uh, I think a healthy congregation has all sorts of prayer going on. Uh, there's not just one type. Now, the third uh, way we find in the New Testament of a public or a more corporate prayer is, is what we'll call a, a charismatic prayer cell. And Paul describes this in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. And this is at the end of three chapters about the spiritual gifts. He says, well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, he's talking about in worship, and it would have been in the homes, probably 20 people, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues, another will interpret what is said. Everything that's done must strengthen all of you. No more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak one at a time, and someone must interpret what they say. But if no one is present who can interpret, they must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three people prophesy, let the others evaluate what's said. But if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who's speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak, one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns, for God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. So this is a third corporate expression of uh, praying in the Spirit. Here's what I find in my life, and here's what I found this past week, as I'd been somewhat worried about my one bar. Essentially, what I've heard the Lord say is, quit focusing on your own experience in prayer. It's so much bigger than that, Doug. Focus on the eternal conversation that's going on between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Focus on the beauty of praying with the people of God. Focus on Advent that's coming up when you get to pray these wonderful prayers that the church has been praying for 2,000 years. Let those prayers wash over you. I don't really care that you're at one bar. Look up. You'll be fine. Get over it, <laughs> was essentially what I felt he was saying. 
So, like a friend of mine said this week, you know, this is too theological for me. I, I just like to talk to Jesus as my friend. I'd say, oh, that's fine. That's fine, if that's working for you. But if you get stuck like I've been stuck, it might help to recall the Trinitarian vision of prayer we find in the New Testament. We pray to a Father who's crazy about us, through the Son who's made it possible to come to the Father, by the Spirit who prays through us when we pray. So we have one more sermon in our series, and then the new year starts. Next week we'll look at the Trinity as a model of a just city. So let's pray.